When I think about a time that I have been disappointed in God throughout my life, many moments come to mind and stories. And uh, honestly, I've been in a season of disappointment for the past couple of years. I question my callings and talents in life. I've gone through many job changes, lost relationships to death, to just relationships ending due to unhealthiness. Um, which has caused other important relationships to end. And it's been really hard. It's been a lot of grief and trying to find peace in those moments whenever it's difficult and questioning, God, why is this happening? And why are you showing up in these ways that are causing pain, causing me to question you, question who I am, who you created me to be, um, causing me to learn how to trust people again, how to trust you again, how to trust relationships in general and how to grow as a human um, because it's been messy and it's been hard wondering where are you in all of this. And the biggest thing that I've learned in this season and continuing to learn that life isn't about finding happiness or joy, but it's about finding peace in every, every circumstance and being able to know that you were there with me every step of the way. And I hope that as I continue to heal as a person that I can learn how to trust again and trust God and stop always feeling disappointed by what happens in life, but knowing that life has its hurts, its ebbs and flows, and that through that, um, that there is hope in every circumstance and that it builds us up more and more into who God created each of us to be, um, created me to be. So in the season of life, as I'm healing, I'm thankful to be back in community with Crossroads, getting to work with students and campers and be surrounded by friends and people who love me and through that able to recognize more and more of who God created me to be and find peace in life. And as I continue to heal, I hope I find more and more of that each and every day. Right. Good morning. It's good to see most of you. I'm just, I just want you to guess which ones. No, it's good to see everybody. Thanks for being here today. My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. Uh, we're in this series, Campfire Stories, where we are exploring uh, stories, and we're asking questions about what can we learn from these? What wisdom can we gain? And we're hearing Crossroads family members' stories, right, uh, every week sitting around. And you say, well, how would we talk about life together, right? And Emily's story that you just heard is not an uncommon story. Does it resonate with you in your heart, that idea of disappointment with God, disappointment with life, disappointment with the universe, whatever words you like to use? But does that resonate? Did you hear some of the statements that she said, and, and, and could you go, yes? She talked about being in a season of disappointment. Maybe you've experienced that. I love that, that idea that it was a season, not a moment, but a season that she found herself with her experiences and the pain that she had gone through, uh, questioning her own gifts and talents, her own value. Like, what can I actually offer? She talked about questioning God, saying, why is this happening? Anybody ever had a moment like that? Raise your hand up nice and high. Can we own those? Maybe you're in it right now. Like, why am I here listening to this right now? <laughs> Right? We have that. We have those experiences. Uh, she talked about how the pain that she had experienced in certain relationships and the pain that she had experienced even in her relationship with God had caused her to like, relearn how to trust people again, like go through this season of what is it like to even learn to trust, learn to trust God again, wondering where God was in all of it, right? 
The reality is, all of our lives, every life, is filled with disappointments. We all have expectations, and when we don't meet those expectations, we find ourselves disappointed. And we are oftentimes disappointed with people. We get disappointed with circumstances in our lives. We get disappointed with God. We're given this image of God, this picture of God through our culture. We're given a picture of God through our upbringing. We're given a picture of God through people that are like me that stand up in front of you and say, hey, this is what God is like. This is who God is. We're handed these images of God, and oftentimes those images are beautiful and wonderful, and they, they, they kind of give a little bit of an imprint. They give a little bit of a, a, a truth, a beauty into this great mystery. But sometimes we're handed an image of God, of the divine, that doesn't seem to fit our reality. Right? We're handed certain things, and we're told God is certain things, and maybe there's even a Bible verse that's given to you to say, hey, look, this is what the Bible says, and this is who God is. But then all of a sudden, we like look around, and we live for about 10 minutes, and we go, whoa, wait a second. Like we're told things like God is in control. Something really bad happens to you. Very well-meaning person will say God is in control. Yet, when you look around at this life, you're like, man, that is a lousy, lousy understanding of control. And even when you read our scriptures, when you read the Christian scriptures, and you see the God that is portrayed and understood in there, this doesn't seem like a God that is all too much into control. Like there's a lot of humanity in it. Right? Maybe you were raised with this idea that God is unquestionable, that you're not allowed to, not allowed to question God not allowed to confront God, that this is what it is, and you just submit to it, and you kind of live in this kind of cowering space. Yet, some of the greatest stories in the Bible are of people who question God. Are people who are like, God, are you really that dumb? Like, you're going to bring all these people out into the wilderness, rescue them from Egypt, and then kill them all? What are people going to say about you? And God's like, you know, Moses, you bring up a good point. I won't do that. That's the, that's the story. It's there. I'm not making that one up. Sometimes I make them up. That one is, is really in there, you know. I just like to keep you on your toes, right? And here's a tough one. Sometimes we've been told God is all-powerful. That God is this all-powerful being that sits on a throne. And then we, like, look at our world. And we recognize a world that's filled with violence and poverty a world that's filled with sickness and death, rape and murder, abuse, neglect. Many of these things we've experienced in our own lives. And we say, if there's a God that is all-powerful, what is that all about? We'll go to our churches and we'll sing songs with lyrics like, you're never going to let me down. No, you're never going to let me down. And then we leave and it's Tuesday and we feel let down. Like, how did I get laid off? How did they get the promotion? How come they have kids? How come I can't seem to get it? And so we live in this constant tension with kind of what we're told God is and what reality actually is. And when this tension hits its hardest, when we find ourselves like really weighed down by this tension, really weighed down by the trauma of life experiences, really weighed down by the fact that religion oftentimes and the people who represent God are the ones that can hurt us the most. When we live in that tension, when it hits us the hardest, we make a choice. And oftentimes that choice is to either abandon our sense of reality or to abandon God. 
right? We put on these kind of like spiritual blinders and just say, it's not real, right? We abandon reality, what's actually happening in front of us, and we kind of sit back and we have this image of a God that's just one day going to come and fix everything. Well, God's going to clean up the mess. So why even worry about it? Like, it's just too big of a deal. God loves us so much that he lets us screw everything up. And one day, it's going to get bad enough. God's going to clean it all up, so we'll just come into our, like, church buildings, and we will pretend that reality doesn't exist. That's a choice that many make. There's another choice that a lot of times we make, and that is to abandon God. Like, we walk away from the idea of the divine. We walk away from any trust in God, and then we just try to fix it all ourselves, right? Like, we'll just put all of our brain power, we'll put all of our science to it, we'll put all the money we have to it, we'll solve all these problems, we'll solve world hunger, we'll solve poverty, we'll solve all these things, we'll create and we'll heal every sickness, every disease, we'll just do it on our own, we don't need God, and, and we do that out of a sense of pain oftentimes, and then we realize, oh wait, maybe we can't, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a big job. Maybe there's a lot of pain even involved in doing that good work. But the, today's campfire story kind of gives us a third option. A third option that's kind of somewhere in the middle. That says there is a faith, there is a way to see the world, there is a way to think about the divine that honors the reality of, of goodness, the reality of a divine presence, but also the reality of pain and trauma and death that there is a faith that honors reality and the divine presence at the same time. It honors that there's doubt and anger and that there's joy. And that's what this beautiful story about the raising of Lazarus tells us. Now, you might have heard this story before about Lazarus, his good friend of Jesus, he and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And the Gospel of John tells us this story. We don't have this story in any other Gospels. If you're new to kind of Bible study, you're thinking about Scripture in our lives, uh, there's four things we call the Gospels. They're writings, books, whatever word we use inside of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They are very, very, they share a lot of the same stories. They share the same sources. They kind of follow along mostly the same kind of plot line. John's very, very different. John gives us a really different picture, in a sense, of what it means to tell the story of Jesus. And before we get to the story of Lazarus, I know this is going to just make some of you so excited, but you've got to understand a little bit about the book of John. Because what happens is if we just rip the story out of the book of John, we miss what John's trying to tell us in this story. And no gospel, more than the gospel of John, has shaped kind of Christian thought. And, and big ideas, big ideas around like the incarnation of God, God in flesh. Where do we get that from? John. If we didn't have John, we really wouldn't have this understanding of the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. John is the gospel that gives us the I am statements. If you ever heard that Jesus has said things like, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, these statements come only in the gospel of John. So we get a unique perspective, right? The gospel of John has no parables, right? The Synoptic Gospels, it says that Jesus only taught in parables. <laughs> and then in John, there's no parables. Okay, little, little contradiction there. That's okay, though. That's all right. So John has no parables whatsoever. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' public ministry is mostly in kind of the region that he grew up in, in Galilee, which is kind of upper, it's the northern part. 
He only goes to Jerusalem one time, and that's his final week of his life. But in the Gospel of John, he spends a whole bunch of time in the south. Goes to Jerusalem at least three times. So it's like, well, which one is it? But these aren't texts that are too concerned with history. They're concerned with theology. Right? Jesus says all these statements about his divinity in the Gospel of John. He never talks about his divinity in the Synoptic Gospels. Rarely ever says that. But in John, he says things like, I am the Son of God. He says these types of things. But they have a lot of things in common, too. In, in, in all the Gospels, Jesus' ministry like, starts with John the baptizer. They all emphasize Jesus' last week of his life there in Jerusalem. And any other stuff that they have in common, including those, like John just treats very differently. So, for example, there's this story about Jesus, and he goes into the temple, right? And there's a bunch of money changers there because you'd have to go and, and make your sacrifices. And you would either bring your animals with you or you'd have to buy them there. And there's this story of Jesus going in, and he freaks out, loses his temper. I mean, you might not think he loses his temper, but I think anybody that goes in turns over tables, makes a whip, whips the animals out. I think that's, you know, he was angry, right? <laughs> and, and, and he does this. Now, it's interesting. In the Gospel of John, this happens very early in Jesus' ministry. But in the Synoptic Gospels, it's the last thing that Jesus does, and it's what gets him arrested. So, like, there's a question there. Well, when does it happen? Like, how does that work? The miracle stories that we have in the Synoptic Gospels, in the Gospel of John, they're stories that are meant to tell us something about Jesus because Jesus always does these miracles and then he finishes the miracle with an I am statement. So he feeds the 5,000 in John and he says what? I am the bread of life, right? So John's teaching us things, right? Teaching us all sorts of things about Jesus through story. So in John's Gospel, Jesus dies on a completely different day than Jesus dies in the Synoptic Gospels. I don't know if you knew that or not. In the Synoptic Gospels, everything happens. His passion, his arrest, it all happens the day of Passover, on the day of Passover. In the Gospel of John, it all happens the day before Passover. Because for the Gospel of John, John wants Jesus to die at the exact same time that the Passover lamb is slaughtered. So in the temple, you have the Passover lamb being slaughtered, and out uh, on, the, on the hill, you have Jesus being slaughtered. So John's teaching, right? John's teaching us these things. That's important for John. Now, which day did Jesus die on? I don't have any idea. But I know the significance of it. John's trying to tell me the significance. So Jesus is dead before the Passover actually begins because John says it's important for you to understand that Jesus represents this this amazing sacrifice on behalf of God. And the unique nature of John's gospel is not anything new. Please don't think, oh, this is just like modern liberal scholars. No, like in the year 200, the first thing we have, there's a guy named Clement of Alexandria. And, and Alexandria was a hub of Christianity in Egypt. And this guy, he, he actually said, hey, there's something unique here. And he called the Gospel of John a spiritual gospel. And what he meant was that the Gospel of John, the language is symbolic. The language is teaching us something. And while many scholars today would say, hey, the Gospel of John is not as historical as the other Gospels, That doesn't mean we throw it out, but it means we understand what it is, that it's this powerful testimony of what Jesus had become in the lives of those earliest followers. It probably was written down about 60 years after the life of Jesus, and it tells us what Jesus had become. And this is the Jesus, and this is the Christian community near the end of the first century that shaped Christianity for, for millennia. 
We read this, and it shapes and informs our ideas. And there's three major themes in the Gospel of John. And you'll read this all throughout the book. If you ever read the book, the Gospel of John, you could read it this week. There's three big themes. Life, light, and enlightenment. Those are the three big themes. And they also, we get the introduction of the themes right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Maybe you've heard this prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in that prologue, it says that the Word is the life of the world, that it's the light of all people, and the true light that enlightens all people. It's funny how a lot of Christians don't like the word enlightenment. They don't like the word enlightened, to be enlightened, like to find enlightenment. We think that's really weird. Yet it's like the Gospel of John. Like Jesus is the thing that enlightens all of us. When you find an enlightening moment, you can trust that God's at work in that, right? So Jesus is the embodiment of this revelation that what we can understand about God in any human being, like we see it in Jesus. Like he's the wisdom of God, the word of God, right? And so this language of symbols and the way John would tell stories is really powerful. How many of you have ever heard of, raise your hand up nice and high, if you've heard of the story of where Jesus turns water into wine, the wedding feast at Cana. Oh man, we have too many Bible people here. I was hoping a lot of you wouldn't raise your hand. But this is another great story. This story is not for John. This story is not about, oh, look at Jesus. He can turn water into wine. John is using a story to tell us the significance of Jesus. He says it was on the third day when he talks about it. Big things happen on the third day in the Bible. He says there was a wedding in Cana. A wedding is an image and language that is often used of Israel to their God, a wedding, right? And, and, and there's this wine that comes and happens, and it's, it, it's abundance of wine. And what John is saying through the symbols, through the images of this story, is that the Jesus story is a story about the marriage of heaven and earth. It's a story about this, this wedding feast where the wine never runs out, where the best is saved for last. That's what John said, and that's why it happens at the very beginning. This is what it's all about. So that's the power of the language. And there's one other bit of language that John uses that's really important for us to understand before we read this story, and that is this phrase, eternal life or everlasting life. How many of you ever heard the phrase eternal life? Right? Good. Again, too many Bible people. Please invite your friends, okay? No, here's the deal. John uses this phrase about 17 times. Not about 17 times. I looked it up. It's exactly 17 times, right? The other Gospels rarely use this phrase, eternal life, just a few times, everlasting life. Now, because John uses this phrase so much, it's commonly misunderstood that this is a suggestion that, hey, this is about the afterlife. This is about going to heaven. And so John's frequent use has led to this widespread notion that Jesus is ultimately about life after death. How do you get through the pearly gates? Can I get an amen? Because he says it all the time, everlasting life. But here's the thing. Jesus and early Christianity, they were primarily focused on this world. Transformation of lives right now. Transformation of the world this side of death. That was their focus. Now, it, I say of course, you might know, but Jesus and Paul, they all believed in an afterlife. That wasn't the question. It just wasn't the heart of their message. So with this phrase uh, eternal life or everlasting life was about a new age, a new epic, right? It was what was next. And so their message, Jesus and Paul, was about the kingdom of God on this earth that was now, that was being ushered in, right? What life could be like under God's reign, not 
sinful, arrogant, prideful, greedy lords and kings. So this, the Greek phrase everlasting life could better be translated the life of the age to come. The life of the age to come, this new age that, would, that Jesus was saying is present. This wasn't a future hope, but a present reality. In fact, G- John speaks about this in present tense. In John chapter 17, verse 3, John says, this is eternal life. So funny, we, we go, what's eternal life? Like, it's right here, right? He explains it. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Anything in there about streets of gold? It's not a trick question. No. Anything in there about a mansion in glory? Anything in there about when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing. Now, which is a funny song that we sang in church growing up, when we all get to heaven, but then we said it was really about 10% of us. The other 90% were going to hell. <laughs> I mean, the song says when we all get to heaven, but what we mean is when everybody in this room gets to heaven <laughs> and everybody else is burning in hell, when we all... When some of us see Jesus... It's problematic theology... It's right here, right? He says, this is eternal life, that you would know God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? There's this life that is found in hiding our lives in Jesus. Now, I think you can have confidence that death is not the end. Don't hear me what I'm not saying. But the primary message of Jesus is not about this promise of life after death or how to enter it. It's about right now. Now, with all that in mind, Let's quickly jump into our campfire story because you want to go home and the people watching your kids do it every week, as Aisha said. Okay, so here we go. Here's the story. John chapter 11. The scene is Jesus has left the... He's kind of traveled north a little bit. He's left Jerusalem and Judea because they're trying to kill him, okay? In the Gospel of John, they're trying to kill him. They don't like him. He represents um, a, a bit of fear. He's, he's shaking things up. He's questioning the power structures that exist. There, his, his movement is threatening the security of Israel with Rome, according to the religious leaders. And so he's hiding out from the Judeans, the text says, who are looking to stone him. And then he hears about his friend Lazarus. Word comes to him, probably through some underground system, that his friend Lazarus is sick. He hears that he's sick. He decides to stay two more days, the text says. Just hanging out. Stays two more days. And then he looks at his disciples and goes, hey, let's go. Time to go back. Let's go check in on Lazarus. And they're all like, are you nuts? Everybody's trying to kill you there. What would no? All his disciples are like, this is a bad idea, Jesus. Lazarus will be fine. It's just a cough. It's no problem. Jesus is like, no, we've got to go. So along the way, they turn back along the way, Jesus explains that Lazarus has died. So now he knows Lazarus is dead. But here's the deal. I'm going to raise him to life. That's what he says to his disciples, right? And the disciples are like, oh, this just gets even better. Like, they're already mad at you. And in the Gospel of John, by the way, the raising of Lazarus is the final straw that then sets in motion the betrayal and the death of Jesus. It actually says in the story, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, and I always read this with like a huge hint of sarcasm, Jesus is like, we're going to go, and I'm going to raise him from the dead. It's going to be off the chain. It's going to be amazing. And Thomas is like, 
So Jesus walks away and Thomas says, hey, let's just all go so we can all die. This is awesome. Like he actually says, let's just all go too and we'll all die. This will be wonderful. So like they get that this is a bad idea, right? They're like, this is not going to go well. So pick up the story at verse 17, chapter 11. For those of you that are like, really, you want to know what translation I'm reading, I'm reading from the Good News translation. It says that when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been buried for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the center of where there was a lot of people who did not like Jesus. And many of the Judeans, certainly not the ones that wanted to kill Jesus, but perhaps some of them, they came to comfort Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. I I love this picture. (laughs) You see, Mary was filled with pain and disappointment, and it just kept her from Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's, I think, a real place to be. And, and there's no passing of judgment, but it's just a statement of fact that sometimes it's our pain and our disappointment and our experiences that keep us from Jesus, that keep us from God, that keep us from love. It's just the truth of it, because they're difficult and they're hard. But Martha goes out, and Martha says to Jesus, you know, if you had been here, if you had been here, Lord, my brother, he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have. I don't know what happened. I don't know. We told you, but here's the deal. I know, and I, I believe that God will give you whatever you ask him for. It's kind of a weird statement. But I think what we see in Martha in this is that she held the tension between hope and hurt. That there is a tension in having a hope for this life, a hope for goodness, a hope for grace, a hope for joy in the midst of loss and pain and disappointment. And then Jesus says to her this, your brother will rise to life, Martha. Your brother's going to rise to life. And Martha says, I know. I know that he'll rise to life on the last day because Martha was part of a group of Jews that believed in the resurrection. This was a hot topic at the day. There were a group of Jews that believed in a resurrection of the body, and there were a group of Jews that did not believe in the resurrection of the body, and there were a group of Jews that didn't care. (laughs) Probably most of them, right? You think about our world, like we get in all these debates about theology, most people are like, I don't care, whatever. But that's what was going on. And so Jesus, part of this story, by the way, in its context, is to help get a better understanding of the resurrection, the general resurrection that was floating around. It had been a debate for about 100 years. And Martha... And what we learned from this statement is Martha's hope for like her brother Lazarus was in the future, was in the next life. Like she had no hope for this life, right? So she says, my hope for what what God is going to do will be in the next life. But Jesus says to her in the story, I am the resurrection and the life. This is one of those I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Now, I want to read this slow because this makes no sense, okay? (laughs) These two sentences together. So we, we gloss over this. John says, Jesus says this, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they what? Die. So they're going to die, but they're going to live. And then Jesus says, and those who live and believe in me will never, what's the word? Die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? (laughs) So Martha's full of grief and she's getting a theology test by Jesus right now, right? 
So I have a tendency to think this is theology and not history. I don't really think that Jesus is that insensitive, that like he just doesn't pay any attention to this grieving woman and is like, let's talk about theology right now. No, John's teaching us something here, okay? And the question makes no sense. So her answer even makes no sense. It says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. Nothing about living after dying, dying without living, none of it. She's like, sure. Like, that's the English equivalent of when you get asked a question and you're not sure, you're just like, I know the answer should be yes, so I'm going to say, yeah, sure. She said, here's the thing, like, I don't think Martha understood the question. I don't think Martha understood Jesus. I think Martha was filled with grief, but she believed that God was present in Jesus. Right? There's something about the confusion of this life, the chaos of this world, that, that you just almost have to surrender to it and hold the paradox and just say, yes, but I have no idea what you just said. Believe in me and you'll live even though you die, but believe in me and live in me and you won't die? What does that even mean, Jesus. So he just says, no, I just believe you're the promise of God. That's all that language is about, by the way. Messiah, one sent by God, all that's Jewish language for, I just believe you're God's presence right here in front of me in my life. And so at this point, Martha, probably like, I just need a break from you, Jesus. <laughs> she goes and gets Mary, right? She goes privately, she gets Mary, she doesn't want to embarrass Mary, and, and it feels like Mary just kind of begrudgingly comes out to Jesus. She's grieving, she's hurting, and she falls at Jesus' feet, and she's angry, and she's scared, and she loves Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, and that's all she says. She doesn't say, but whatever can happen. No, like she's in a different space than Martha, and that's okay. And that's okay. She doesn't have the hope. She doesn't, she's not thinking about it. She's angry. She's tired. She can't believe how disappointed. She can't believe Jesus wasn't there. And Jesus sees her weeping, sees all the people weeping, sees the pain and grief, and he begins to weep, and they all weep together. But there are some people in the crowd, and they're angry, and they say, this Jesus, like we've seen him heal sick people. Had he been here, Lazarus would be okay. Like he's crying, but he could have done something about it. And Jesus says, you know what? Let's, let's go to the tomb. Show me where the tomb is. And so they take Jesus and they take him over to the tomb. And he says, okay, I want you to move the stone. Move that stone out of the way. And now they're all like, well, grief has gotten to Jesus' head. Because it stinks. We can't be doing that, Jesus. We'll all pass out. And they say, they say, like, There'll be a bad smell, Lord. There will be, I mean, just you know, there's going to be a bad smell. He's been there for four days. Jesus says to her, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? Didn't I tell you? If you just believe, you'll see God at work. So they took the stone away, and Jesus looked up, and he says this prayer in John. I thank you, Father, that you listen to me. I know that you always listen to me, but I say this for the sake of the people here so that they'll believe that you sent me. Now again, I don't know that this is a historical prayer. I don't think we're meant to think, oh, Jesus prayed this prayer. John wants us to know. Like, you should understand Jesus was sent by God, right? It's kind of a weird prayer for Jesus to be praying real loud. I just want everybody to hear. 
so that they'll know, like, no, I think this is a story that John's telling us so that we understand who Jesus really was. And so, after he prays, he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out, and his head and his hands and his feet are all wrapped in grave clothes. And he says, untie him and let him go. And here's the thing, the story goes on, and word spreads because this guy that was dead is now walking around. And the religious leaders hear it, and it's at this moment they say, we have to act. The very act of giving life brings Jesus' death. Like that, we can't miss the parabolic nature of the story. I don't think this is a story about, see, Jesus can raise people from the dead, so you should believe in him. I don't think that's the point of the story. I think the point of the story and what John wants us to know is that Jesus offers life right now. That Jesus says right now, the death of this world, the sting of this world doesn't have to have the final story right now. And so I don't want us to miss this as we sit and think about these stories, as we think about our own disappointment with God and life and death and pain and trauma, that we can have hope. Like with Jesus, we can have hope in life without denying the traumas of life. There was no denying that Lazarus was dead. He was dead. But there was hope. There's hope. And too often in our faith, we deny the reality of the pain and the traumas and the disappointments of a life filled and a world filled with evil. And I think this story invites us into honoring that. Because can I tell you something? Jesus in the story raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, wonderful, great. But here's the deal. Lazarus died again. Know what I'm saying? He's dead. Yes, great story. Helps me understand Jesus. But I don't want us to miss the reality that at some point, Lazarus died. And they went through the grieving process all over again. So whether you take this story literally, factually, historically, whether you take it metaphorically, whether you, whatever, here's the truth behind it. In the midst of death and pain and trauma and hurt, Jesus is present offering life that's different. And it's the complexity of the fact that you will die, but guess what? You don't really ever die. And there's a great mystery involved with that that can't be understood. It's just felt. There is this, you'll live even though you die. And if you live and believe in me, here's the deal, you'll never die. Wait, well, hold on. It's a paradox, but, but that's like so much of life is filled with beautiful paradoxes. Love itself is a paradox. And that's what the story, and that's what Jesus is inviting us into when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life right here, right now. Hope is now, right here, present. And so as we take this story and we think about our everyday normal lives, a couple of things. We ought to remember that in a sense, Every one of us, every person on this planet is like Lazarus. That's what the story wants us to know. Every one of us are dead in some way. Every one of us is experiencing death in our lives. There's ending of relationships. There's ending of hopes and dreams. There's the, there's the reality that we pursue things that we think will bring us joy and happiness, and we serve that like 
God, and then we realize, oh, wait, no, that's not going to do it. And then we serve religion thinking it's going to bring us joy and happiness, and then it doesn't. And then we're like, oh, wait, no, hold on a second. There's a death in all of it. I mean, Jesus even experienced a death, the death of God, like this beautiful statement that we have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's God dying, the eternal dying. It's built into the fabric of reality, loss and disappointment and pain, which produces hope and drive. And it's this great paradox. Scripture uses language like we're dead in our sins. I use language like we're dead in our wounds. We wound one another. We've been wounded, and it just stunts us. It holds us back. The wound never gets healed. It never gets taken care of. It never gets bandaged up, and so we just live in our woundedness. But the call of God, the beauty of Jesus, is that those wounds can be healed. By his stripes, we're healed, the Scripture says. And it's not that the wounds never happened. It's not that there's not scar tissue. It's not that it's not real. It's that those don't have to define us. But we do have to listen for the call of Jesus. In the story, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. I think we have these, these moments where Jesus calls to us the spirit, the universe, whatever word you want to use, there's a whisper that comes to us that says, come out from that grave. Let's get those grave clothes off of you. Let's recognize that your hope and your joy and your peace isn't going to be found in religion or money. That some, at some point, you just have to let it die, this idea of a God of pleasure, that that's the ultimate goal, so that what can be raised to life in you is a God of purpose, a life of purpose and meaning that you bring to this. Second thing is, at some point, we all have to recognize that we will feel like Mary and Martha. All of us at some point in time are going to have those moments where we do a great job of holding the tension between hope and trauma, hope and pain, and there's going to be those moments where the pain pushes us away from God. And at some point, I just want to say to you, it's okay. Be okay with that. Stop trying to force people out of their trauma. Stop trying to force people out of their pain. If they're sitting in their home away from Jesus, you can do the Martha thing and go over and talk with them and be present there. But let's not judge and condemn and, and pretend we know what their experience is like. Sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is just to be present in the midst of that pain and that hurt and that loss. So if you're here today and you're caught in the middle of hope and trauma, this is a safe space. If for some reason you're here today and you're just caught in the trauma and the pain and you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, you're loved. And this can be a community that says, fine, don't have, I get it. Especially those of you that, like, like, Jesus was the source of your trauma. Now, that'll mess with your mind after everything I just said for the last 25 minutes. But the way we represent and what we do sometimes in the name of Jesus is blasphemous and it, it produces pain. So God's going to use all kinds of other mechanisms to restore your heart, to bring back your joy that maybe don't even involve the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus was so blasphemed in your life, it's going to be a long journey back to trust. And that's okay. That's okay. I always want to encourage you to just hold the pain. Bring it. Bring the pain to life. You can bring it to this body, this church, this body of Christ, and we'll hold it with you. 
And we won't pretend that it's just easily fixed with a little prayer, some anointing oil, and you just leave happy. No, we'll just sit with you. We'll be miserable with you. We'll believe for you, right? We say, I'll pray for you, but sometimes we have to believe for people. We have to sing for people. We have to have joy for people, and we have to be okay with not singing and not having joy. That's what it means to be, I think, a community. Here's the thing. At times, at all times, I want to encourage all of us to strive to be like Jesus in the story. Jesus entered their trauma with empathy and understanding. Like that, I think, is the call of the follower of Jesus, to honor the paradox, to bring hope, to ask good questions, to love on people, to seek the ones that are hiding away from Jesus, to seek the ones that the pain. And just when you get there, just be a presence of love and hope. That's it. Don't be a presence with all the answers. Don't feel like you have to have all the right words. It's not your job. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to make it all better. I know we want to do that. We think there's a magic word, but there's not. And just remember, if you're in that space, like when you can't put your faith in God because God has become so twisted and God has been this source of pain in your life, I would encourage you to put your faith in love. Put your faith in love. And see what happens. The reality is for many of us, myself included, there's a problem with the word God. It represents so many things. And so sometimes it's really difficult to say, I'm going to just put my hope in God when God has been this source of pain or trauma. And so what I say is, well, I just go back to this beautiful statement that God is love. I think the whole story of the Bible is culminating with Jesus and then being degraded all the way through Revelation. There's just tension in it all. It's just love each other. I get it. You're going to try and create all these laws to help you love each other. I get it. You're going to do all these things that say, this is who's in it. And you get, but that it all boils down to this. Jesus said it. Love God. Love your neighbor. The whole story, that's what it is. And so I just put my faith in love these days because sometimes I'm not sure what I mean or what I should mean when the word God is used because it gets used by so many different people, so many different languages, so many different cultures. But love, love that sacrifices, love that gives. And the beauty of it is this, when we, when, we, when we honor the inside of faith is trauma, the inside of the reality is pain, that God is not in control the way we think about it, that God is not all-powerful in the way, when we just allow ourselves to say those things and still find beauty in the divine, faith-shaming ends. Y'all ever been faith-shamed? Right? Faith-shaming looks like this. Well, you just got to have more faith. You just got to pray more. You just got to give a little bit more. You got to stop focusing on yourself so much. Look at how much worse they have it. That's all faith shaming. But when we just honor the pain of life, that it's part of the story, that God's self, as we as Christians proclaim that Jesus was God incarnate, that God's self felt that pain and that disruption and that betrayal by God. It's a paradox. We don't have to just keep faith, right? Sometimes we have to lose our faith to find our faith. There's another one that will blow your mind. Sometimes you just got to give up on it all. And then all of a sudden, you go on this journey and you find yourself believing in love again. And I do think that love finds us in the pain that comes 
when we let go of Zeus. <laughs> In my life, it's been very painful to let go of Zeus because <laughs> Zeus God is good at times. It provides me this stability. It gives me this hope, but it always disappoints. It always produces fear. And what I found is as I've let go of certainty, which is what Zeus religion's all about, love has found me. And, I, and in my uncertainty and in my mystery around God, I think I've become a more loving person than I ever thought I could be. And that to me feels like resurrection. So we're going to finish with a song. And this song is a song about pain. This song is a song about anger with God, disappointment about loss. And as we have this song, I want to encourage you to pull out your um, communication card, your connect card, excuse me, and your offering envelope, and you can finish getting those ready in just a couple minutes. Our room host will pick up the baskets during this song and send the baskets down the aisles, and you can use the orange kiosk, whatever. But, but this song just says, where were you? I called and I called and I called and I tried and I tried, but you're never there. But yeah, you found me, all right, but I was broken. I was lying on the floor like everything was taken away from me. It was just, it was just too late. And today we want to hold space for that experience that's real and genuine and okay. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to the pain around us, to the pain inside of us. Help us to let go of Zeus. Help us to let go of images of God that are sure to disappoint so that we might walk into what love is, this beautiful mystery to be given away, to be received. Amen. So if you're in this space of pain, if you're in a space of hurt, you find yourself just lying on it, like, I don't think God demands that you get up and run and like be so great. I don't think that's, I think when you're ready, when you're ready, what Jesus represents is, is a future, a hope, but it's okay to lie on the ground and wait. I think that's the beauty of what we have Mary, like she comes out, but she just falls down and she's weeping and she's angry. That's okay. And I think we as a church need to have the space for that. So as we head out, we have a blessing for you today. If you'd stand with me, you can open up your arms and receive this blessing if you feel comfortable doing that. If not, you can put your hands in your pocket. So today, as you leave this place and as you head into your everyday normal life, may the hope of Jesus carry you through the pain and traumas of this life. May you find the courage to believe that love is present in your pain. May you find the courage to open your heart to that love that can heal and restore. And may we all understand that the resurrection and the life is not found in the future or in the powers and priorities of this present world and its kingdoms. But may we as Crossroads Church dedicate ourselves as a collective and as individuals to the resurrection and life that is found in this present moment while walking the peacemaking path of love, forgiveness, inclusion, mercy, and generosity. And may the Spirit of Jesus be our guide along this path that heals and gives life, but is also at the same time filled with pain and trauma and disappointment. And may love be our law this week and always. Amen.
Have a great week, everyone.